Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at a section that's uh, pretty well known, and we're going to try to express how Luke saw this particular event. So we're at the end of the chapter. We're at Luke 5, verse 33. And they said unto him, and that's speaking about Jesus, why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. And he said unto them, can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and, they sh and then shall they fast in those days. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a, new, a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new make of the rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also having drunk the old wine straightway desires new, for he says, the old is better. Now, these comments are just randomly dropped on the audience. There's things that have been occurring, tensions between Jesus Jesus' disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees along with the Pharisees. And the question at hand is about fasting. And so these men would fast, these Pharisees and their disciples would fast twice a week. Now that was a tradition that was started by the Pharisees. Moses' law only required fasting one day per year. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 16. So when Jesus is asked that question, he's going to respond with three short parables. First, Jesus points out that fasting during a wedding feast is ridiculous. In that parable, Jesus is the bridegroom, and while he is in the world, it is a time of celebration. He is the fulfillment of of messianic prophecy. To continue fasting with Jesus present is like fasting and being mournful during a wedding celebration when the groom is present. And of course, those were huge times for great celebration. Many folks were brought, for, brought in and it lasted for days in some occasions. Jesus is saying, why would my men be mournful in my presence? It's a time of celebration. The other two parables make the same point. It exposes the ridiculous efforts of those two examples that are given. The first one says that you can't put a new patch on an old garment. And the second says you can't put wine into old wineskins. Now, King James like to say bottles, but it's actually wineskins would have been used at the time of Christ. And so... I don't know if the idea of patching clothes fits with today's society. Uh, when I was a kid and I'd get a tear in the knees of my jeans, my mom would patch them. Today, kids go out to the store and they look for jeans that have been torn and pay for that. 
Now, my mom, she would put these big, nasty patches right on the knee of my jeans. They were kind of sticky, they were really thick, and they were uncomfortable. And so they would eventually shrink a little bit, but they would pull away from the old fabric. And soon you would have a bigger rip than you had before. Now that's not really a problem for my mom. She just got a bigger patch. <laughs> Finally, they came out with what was called tough skins. I don't know if you remember those, but Sears sold them. And they just automatically came with a great big patch right on the knee, right from the beginning, right from the store. You had them patched. And the wine, the reference here is, and we studied this in Sunday school, that when you make wine, and during the process that's going to ferment, gases are released, there's an expansion into the wine skin, the skins of uh, sheep or goats, and since the skins are new, they'll just expand out as the wine gases expand into uh, the skin. But once they've been used and emptied, it's been stretched to its limits. It's dry. It's brittle. So if you poured new wine into an old skin, as the fermentation process began, it would expand out, stretching already stretched to its limits wine skin, and it would burst. So now you don't have a skin, and you don't have the wine either. So it's a complete loss. To do that was ridiculous. And Jesus is pointing this out to these men that Jesus cannot be added to work-based religions. The Pharisees have a work-based religion. When they looked at Jesus' disciples, they want to know why Jesus' disciples aren't behaving in the same way that they behave. But the Pharisees were consumed with their own self-righteousness and faith in Jesus would not fit into the skin of the self-righteous rituals of the Pharisees. And faith in Jesus doesn't require the old rituals. That's a misfit match. The Pharisees and Jesus were never going to be identical, nor could they work together. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees felt threatened by this new way of Jesus and his disciples. So they wanted to compare their good works with the works of Jesus' disciples. In this context, it's about fasting. So what are these men saying? You aren't receiving proper training from Jesus. Because if you were you would do the works that we do. There's a weakness in your leader. That's what's being implied here. So we're going to look through chapter 5, and we're going to find six ways that Luke details contrasts between the works of Pharisees and the life of Jesus. So first off, we've got to go back to chapter 4, 
Look at verse 43. Jesus has been traveling. He's been healing. He's been exercising demons. And he's building up quite a social following. Lots of people are behind him. If it was social media like today, he'd be going viral. Everybody would be wanting to see the video of Jesus. They wanted him to stay in their community. But he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. In chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Jesus answered, said to them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I, call not, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees thought that their disciples and their following of the law of Moses taught them the rigorous requirements and the rules and the traditions of the Pharisees and the endless need to meet up to a man-made standard of behavior. That's what the Pharisees were going for. That was their purpose. They only wanted to teach others to live by the same harsh, heavy rules that they lived by. Jesus didn't come for that purpose. These two sections of Luke tell us that he came with a gospel message. He came to call sinners to repentance. And through that repentance, they would enter into the glorious kingdom of God through their belief in the Son of Man. See how diverse these ideas are. One hand says, rely on God for your salvation, and the other says, rely on your rules and regulations and traditions. Those are the options. Contrasted greatly between the two groups. And as we look at that, aren't you glad today that you rely on God and not yourself? How many times in your life have you failed at the rules that you had self-imposed on yourself? You put those in place, and then when they become heavy and difficult, you go ahead and violate them. Because now your thoughts are different. That's the whole point of how God saves his people, because he's still the same all the time. Rules and regulations change with the wind. So the first contrast is in the messages of the two groups. And the second is the contrast in authority. This is in Luke 5, verses 1 through 9. And if this were Sunday school, I'd have somebody read it for me. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. And that press is a little bit more than a heavy crowd that you're mulling through. It's actually, he can't hardly move. They're on top of him so tightly, it's like being pressed in an olive press. Jesus saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. 
and he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let, not, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answered and said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came, and filled both ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the Jesus' knees, and saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of fishes they had taken. So as you see this event, this is another one of those manners and customs studies that we did about the fishing. Don't fish during the daytime. Fish at night. Everybody knows that. Seems like everybody's a good fisherman but Jesus. He's the worst fisherman there. He's got really strange ways of going about catching fish. What happened is they go out at night, and the fish would come up to the surface, and they would feed. Throw your net down, scoop them up, and you would fill your boat and call it a night. On this particular occasion, they discovered that the whole night's worth of work, waste of time and energy, nothing caught. And they were calling it a day. That's the part about cleaning the nets and getting them all ready for that night. So, yep, this is lost. We're not going to go out again. We'll go out this evening. Hope for better. The best time would be in the evening. The worst time would be when Jesus sent them out. Now, you have to try to envision what this looked like. The men are up on the dock. They're cleaning their nets. And Jesus just comes along and he picks out a boat. And he just goes on out there and gets in it. So think of that like today when you leave church, you go out and get in your car and somebody else is sitting in it. It'd be a little bit unusual, right? Don't know what to make of it. So Peter goes over, finds out what's going on. Jesus just wants him to push out from the shore just a little distance, just enough to get away from the press, get away from all those people get his voice magnified across the water. Speaking of which, I didn't get my lapel mic. I see it right there. <laughs> I, I was ready for this, folks. <laughs> I don't know if everybody, can everybody hear me well enough? I'm, I'm speaking up as loudly as I think necessary, but I certainly can go two, two notches higher if you need to. So with this event and Jesus sending him out to do something totally ridiculous, going out further into the lake, dropping down their nets, doing it a strange time, and you know there's an audience here. There's people that have been following Jesus and they're all sitting there. I wonder how this is going to work out. The other fishermen are watching this too and wondering... What ridiculous effort this is. Then a, Peter drops the net and he brings up a massive net full of fish. And everybody's amazed, it says. 
They're astonished. Another translation of that would be, they were dumbfounded. That's that jaw-dropping, you know, I can't believe it. How'd that happen? It violates all rules, right? Well, it did, and it didn't. So they beckon the other ship, and they come over, and by the time they unload all the, the fish from the nets, they have two boats that are sinking in the water. And the crowd wonders what kind of man can do such a thing. They don't understand it. But Peter understands in part because he says, depart from me, I'm a sinner, and you are the Lord. So next, Peter's response to the authority of Christ, who had authority over nature, also had authority over Peter's inner being. And after Peter responded with the, his recognition of Christ, then Peter is going to be called to a higher task. Not the task of catching fish, but the task of going out and catching men with the gospel net. Think of all the different ways Peter could have responded on this days. I mean, he gets some bad press, doesn't he? Guy is always saying stupid things at the wrong time. But notice here, he didn't argue. He, he did say, Lord, I don't think this is a really good time, but if you think it is, I'll go out there. And next, he could have came in and said, when Jesus called him to go forward as a disciple, he could have said, well, I don't know if this is a really good time. I've got a lot of fish here I've got to take care of. Besides that, I've got to close down my business or move it into the hands of others. He packed up, verse 11, and forsook all and followed him. Now, you've got to admit, leaving behind that great catch of fish and walking away from it as a fisherman, as a commercial fisherman, had been pretty hard. But he moved at the command of Christ. So we had a contrast in their message. We had a contrast in authority. There's no example of the authority of Pharisees because none of that could have been done by the hands of the Pharisees. And as we move forward, we're going to see a contrast in interaction with the sick. This is verses 12 through 15. And it came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according to Moses' commands for our testimony unto them. 
and so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Well, we just went through a, a season of social distancing. Everybody got to stay six feet away. Leprosy required social distancing. These men were isolated from everything they knew. If they had a business, they lost it. They had to leave their family, they had to leave their friends, and they had to leave their way of life. They had to stay a minimum of six feet away from anybody else. Imagine the isolation that that would bring on your emotions. You're in solitary. No one's going to talk to you. No one's going to come near you. You would get to a point of complete desperation. So as they moved about, they had to cover their mouth, put their mask on, unclean, 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 stay away. That's your life, warning people to stay away from you. Now, as the leprosy grew worse, they would be easily recognizable because of the disfigurement of their face, hands, or feet. They were required to tear their clothes. They had no way to wash. Their rotting flesh would be disgusting. And it was said that if the wind was coming from their direction, six feet wasn't sufficient. It would require at least 100 feet. So how did the Pharisees interact with lepers? They didn't. They're not going to lay hands on them. They're not going to go near them in any way whatsoever. And there are examples of Jewish leaders bragging about throwing stones at the lepers to make sure they stayed away. So a guy's coming down the road, unclean, unclean. Pharisees like, where's the nearest rock? I am going to toss it at him. Now remember what's happening to these people. Their skin is rotting. So if by chance the Pharisee could throw a strike and hit that rotting, nasty skin, what do you think is going to happen to that leper? It's going to be extremely painful. It could actually tear flesh away. That is how the Pharisees interacted with a leper. Now, keeping all that in mind, they're isolated, they're quarantined, you can't go near them, they come, can't come near you, They've lost their family, they lost their friends, they lost their whole way of life, they don't know anything, and no one is supposed to come near. This man gets well within inside the social distancing circle. He falls before Jesus. And Jesus picked up a rock and hit him in the head with it, right? That's what a good Pharisee would have done. What did Jesus do? Something that man may not have felt for years a human touch 
reached down there and laid its hand on him. Can you imagine that? What that would feel like for the first time in possibly years that another human being was willing to touch you. Profound impact on that man. So he is healed by that touch. Everybody else was concerned about the leper infecting them. And Jesus wasn't infected with leprosy, uncleanness by that man or any of the other sinners that he walked with in his life. So now he tells him to go to the priest as a testimony to the priest. Now what's required in order to be officially cleansed and healed it has to be investigated first to determine if you ever were a leper. Because remember, when that man was healed, he didn't have those scars and pockmarks and all that stuff that normally is associated with healing wounds. I got one on my leg. Anybody want to see a wound on my leg that's healed? Nobody? Yeah. Well, anyhow, it had been a good example if you guys would have went with me, but no. <laughs> Two years later, it's still there. The healing for that leper, it wasn't like that. He was cleansed. Now, it's done. So they're going to have to investigate, was he ever a leper? Maybe this guy is trying to pull some shenanigans on behalf of Jesus. So they're going to have to investigate it. And as they do, they're going to find people that say, yes, he indeed was a leper, and now he's not. Well, how did he not remain a leper? Because there's this guy named Jesus out of Nazareth and he's going around and he's touching people and he's speaking to people and he's healing people. That's how it happened. So that even the priest would have to acknowledge that Jesus has some power that's greater than anything that the Pharisees could do. They would have to recognize his authority and power and would therefore still not believe in him. Isn't that strange? Never seeing anything like this before. And yet, in disbelief. So we had the contrast in interactions, in authority, in the messages, and now in one verse, a lot is being said. Verse 16. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. There's a contrast in the manner of prayer between Jesus and the Pharisees. I'm going to read you some from Matthew chapter 6. That's obviously the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gives instructions to his followers regarding prayer. In verses 5 through 8, and he says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as a hypocrite. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the street, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, 
pray to thy Father which is in secret, and the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. For when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their speaking, much speaking. But be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. And the Pharisees would pray like that. There's examples of how they dressed. They had the long flowing robes. They had the tassels that hung down off the corners of the robe. They had the headdress. And they would stop on a street corner. Or if they stood up in synagogue. And they would pray loudly. Getting everybody to notice. Sometime hunched over. From the weight of the sins of the people around them. And there's yet another example of what that prayer sounded like. That was Jesus' instructions, but in Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to read this from Kenneth Woost's expanded translation. And he puts it in a way that's kind of paraphrased, but it really fits perfectly for the manner in which the Pharisees would pray. This is uh, Luke 18, 9 through 12. This is the Pharisee and the publican praying. And he gave this illustration also to certain ones who had come to a settled conclusion as a result of a finished process of persuasive reasoning that upon the basis of their own worthiness and merit, they were righteous individuals. Did you hear that? Hey, I've been thinking about it. I've been looking at myself. And I realize now that I'm a whole lot better than everybody else around me, and I'm worthy to be called righteous, and who utterly despise the rest of mankind. That is a Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a man of different character, a tax collector. The Pharisee, having assumed a stance, was uttering these things in prayer to himself. So he goes into this place, and where do you think his stance is? Over in the corner all by himself where nobody could see him? Or he's going to walk down there in the middle of a crowd and take his stance? He's going to pray. And what's he going to say? Oh God, I am constantly grateful to you that I am not even as the rest of mankind, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this fellow who's a tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay a tenth of all my income, whatever it might be. That's the prayers. That's the process of praying. See the great difference. See the great contrast. Pharisees that want to be seen, Pharisees that want to be known as righteous, happy in their own self-righteousness. And where did Jesus go to pray? Out there in a wilderness somewhere where nobody even knew exactly where he was at. Great contrast between those two men. And Jesus taught his disciples, follow my example. Find a quiet place to pray. And the Pharisees, we're teaching by their example, their disciples. Be loud, be boisterous, and be seen. 
Jesus went to a secret place to pray. Moving on to the next verses, we have a contrast in power. And it came to pass on a certain day as he is teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal him. And behold, men brought in a, a bed, a man which was taken with palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by that what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, and see, that's the press that was mentioned earlier in verse 1, right? It's, it's so tight. You could, these four men couldn't get the stretcher through the crowd. There's too many people. They went up upon the housetop and led him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, and they're right, can't argue that, right? Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said unto them, Why, what reason ye in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. This crowd is still following Jesus. And this man, who is paralyzed, has some good friends willing to go to extreme measures to have him healed. And of course, what happened that time, the roofs were flat often, there's stairs going up to the roof. On the outside of the building, they carry him up. And once they get up there, they're going to have to break through the roof. And it wouldn't be any different if we were standing here and all of a sudden the plaster started to fall down and a hole was made and a body was lowered right here in front. That's what it would have looked like. And they sat him down in front of Jesus. The Pharisees believed that physical infirmities were caused by sins in the life of the person that had the disease. That's why they didn't want to be near somebody that could potentially rub off on them, like the leper. They didn't want to be near sinful people. They didn't want to be known as someone who is sinful by the company that they keep. The reason he was like that, he was paralyzed, was his own fault. He doesn't deserve healing. God has struck him down. God will bring him back if he chooses to do so. And Jesus goes to the heart of the real problem. Yeah, there's sin in his life, that paralyzed man. There's sin in the lives of every Pharisee who stood around and condemned the man on the couch, as it's called. Enough sin around in that group for everybody to be struck down. But Jesus looked at him and saw faith in the man and in the men that brought him. So 
Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. His greatest need was met first. His greatest need was spiritual and not physical. And Jesus healed that first. Of course, the Pharisees are watching this and they're saying, there's only one that can do that. And that's God. And Jesus acknowledges the fact that it's easy to say words that have no power. But Jesus had power. And as a witness to these men who are standing there watching to see what's going, going to occur, Jesus tells him they get up, gather his stuff, and walk. Just like the leper who went to the priest and had no signs of ever having had leprosy, complete healing. If you sit around for too long without moving, you're going to lose the strength in your legs and you're not going to be able to get up and move. This man, whose muscles may not have been used for years, hopped up, grabbed his bed and walked out through a crowd. It doesn't say he limped out. It doesn't say he crawled out. It doesn't say that he had difficulty and needed help getting out. It said that he jumped up, grabbed his stuff, and he moved on out. A complete healing. In order to, for these folks to visualize what Jesus had done spiritually, he showed them what could be done physically. Being completely healed. How did the crowd react to this event? 25 and 26. Immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay, departed to his own house, and he glorified God. It makes you wonder which healing was he actually glorifying God for the most, right? Definitely I would like to be up and walking if I've been paralyzed for years, but being saved for eternity. And they were all amazed. Haven't we heard about that before? Amazement, astonishment, dumbfoundedness never seen anything like this before and they glorified god the audience this group of people massed around jesus and filled with fear we have seen strange things today <laughs> can't argue with that can you the different events than we've ever seen before that's what's occurred what about the Pharisees? What was their reaction? Well, it doesn't say they glorified God. They're not mentioned after this event. This is one of those times when they say, uh, not available for comment. Because <laughs> what could you say? So we had that contrast in power. And the final, number six, a contrast in followers, 27 through 30. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi 
sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, followed him, and Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? They drew the contrast themselves, didn't they? In this one. Jesus goes in with Levi, and the whole place is filled with more tax collectors and others, along with Pharisees. And the question is, we wouldn't do this. Why do you do this? But in the process of trying to condemn Christ, they had actually gone into the house of Levi to see what's going on, a place they would not have otherwise entered. But to get some dirt on Jesus, well, that's a good reason to enter that household. These Pharisees, they desire to be publicly praised for their righteous behavior. And they would grow disciples who would have the same mentality. But Jesus' followers were considered lowlifes. Fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, manufacturing employees. The Jewish leaders believed that eating with such company condoned acceptance of that person's sin. What they do, I'm okay with it because I'm willing to go in and have a meal with them. But Jesus said he came to call sinners to repentance. Not these righteous men. Not men that were good enough already. Philippians 3, 9 says, Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Sinners who follow Jesus in faith were counted righteous. The self-righteous who rejected him remained sinners. Jesus was not lowering his standards. He just wasn't abiding by the standards of the Pharisees. That's what happened in that home. Jesus brought God himself into a home filled with sinners. And the self-righteous couldn't see their need. So it's from there that the question comes up. Many believe that this particular feast that Levi had was on one of those fasting days of the Pharisees. And if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things you'd do when you were on a fasting day, you'd just make yourself look miserable. Oh, I haven't eaten all day. I'm about to faint. Doesn't everybody see how I mean, you look at me and you're like, man, that guy must fast all week long. <laughs> right? That's what brought up the question. We're fasting. Our disciples are fasting. 
You guys are doing the worst imaginable thing of all. You're not only not fasting, you're eating, and you're eating with a bunch of sinners. It can't get much worse. That's when Jesus dropped that on them about the new wine. Because the new wine of Jesus' gospel couldn't be held by that old, rigid, inflexible religion of the Pharisees. It wouldn't hold Jesus' gospel. Jesus spoke with authority, calling sinners to repentance. The Pharisees had their own righteousness, and they were deaf to the call of Jesus. The Pharisees refused to acknowledge their own sin, but readily condemned others for their sin. Jesus had no sin, but he readily redeemed sinners. What a contrast. What a difference in the wine and the skin that holds it. There is no place in the Pharisees' religion for sinners or those who hung out with sinners. The newness of Jesus' gospel, it was amazing. Twice we've seen that. Where men saw his works and said, this is amazing. It brought fear on the people when they saw the things that Jesus would do. With Jesus' gospel and his presence, it was a time to be celebrated. Like in a wedding. Not heavy-weighted rituals that made its adherents mournful. That new gospel needed a whole new beginning. It needed to be put into a new container. It couldn't be poured in. You can't have a little Jesus and a little of you because all you end up with is a whole lot of you. A little Jesus is greater than all the righteousness of all the righteous men that have ever lived on this earth. That is what Luke was pointing out here. The Pharisees wanted to say, let me show you a contrast. Let me show you what's different. Well, we got some rules that we keep, and one of them is fasting, and we're doing that right now while you guys are eating. They started this. <laughs> it's the Pharisees themselves that started this discussion. And ultimately, Jesus finishes it by saying, you're right, there's nothing equivalent between us. We're completely opposed to each other. But the new way, the gospel way, is the way. Follow Christ. And some of those men did. And thankfully, some still do.